I want to speak tonight about the church that set the world aflame. Which church was it? Which church set the world aflame? Well, we'll read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. We'll read first in Acts chapter 11, reading from verse 19. Acts eleven nineteen. <clears throat> now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And now chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from then to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. 
It was this church at Antioch that set the world aflame. We are living in tremendously momentous days, aren't we? No other generation has lived in, in a time like we are living in. You need to be about my age to realize what, what a wonderful age you're living in. Uh, when I look back, none of the things that you regard as uh, ordinary and commonplace, uh, none of these things were in existence. And the changes that have come in the political world in the, the last few years. You know that in 1950, how many independent countries were there in Africa? You geography students, how many countries in Africa, independent countries? There were four. Today there are 45. And nobody in this audience can tell me the 45. <laughs> they've, they've all <laughs> the preacher can't do it either of course <laughs> but, uh, but here, here, you think in a, a few years ago there were 51 nations I think in 1950 there were 51 nations in the United Nations today there are 151 and now there'll be more with the Balkan states so that the whole picture, the whole political picture has changed. We went to bed a few years ago, and uh, when we went to bed, the economy was pretty good, the finances were not too bad. And we woke up the next morning and found that the finances of the world were in the hands of the Arabs, and life has never been the same since. There has been instability and mounting debt all over the world, and it happened overnight. We went to bed, and the Berlin Wall was there, preventing people from moving from one part of Germany to another. We woke up in the morning, and the Berlin Wall was gone. We went to bed, and the colossus of the Soviet Union, for which we had spent hundreds of billions of dollars to keep at bay and we woke up the next morning and there is no Soviet Union in that full sense and all these things happened overnight and we're seeing, we're seeing things happen now that would have taken centuries before now is it uh, just by chance that these things are happening? God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. And God is working through all these things. What to do? To bring nearer the day when our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a hymn you probably won't know, but it's a great hymn. It says, He shall reign o'er all the earth, He who wore the crown of thorn, whom they deemed of little worth, whom they met with hate and scorn. Send the tidings forth that all humbly at His feet may fall. 
Long his heritage has lain neath the false usurper's sway. He will win it back again, rout the foe and win the day. Send the tidings forth that all humbly at his feet may fall. And this is what we are working toward. I'm going to say a piece of heresy. The blessed hope is not the rapture of the church. You think that's heresy? What is the blessed hope? The coronation of Jesus Christ. That's the thing. The the, the rapture of the church, we're thinking and concentrating on ourselves. We are going to be taken away in the rapture and we're thinking of what this is going to mean to us. There, in my youth, Wilbur Chapman and Charles Alexander came to our country and they brought the, the glory song with them. And there were great meetings, many turned to the Lord. And in the city of Dunedin, in our country, people going to work in the streetcars, they'd be singing the glory song. But when you come to think of it, you know the glory song, Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. What should we be singing? Oh, that will be glory for him. You see, we think of what the Lord's Advent is going to mean to us mostly, but what's it going to mean to him? He will see of the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. And this is the great motive for missionary work, that we might bring about the day when our Lord Jesus Christ will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It's good to turn our eyes outwards, not for what we can get out of our Christian life, but what we can bring to the feet of our Lord and what we can bring to the people who are in such desperate need. And our Lord said, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say stay and make disciples of all nations. There are some people whom he wants to go and to take the gospel to those who have never heard. And that was his great preoccupation during the 40 days after the resurrection when he was among his disciples. And he told them, as I said last night, you shall receive power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And the Holy Spirit who was given on the day of Pentecost, was entrusted with the administration of the missionary enterprise. He is the administrator of the missionary enterprise. And in the passage that we have read this evening, we see how the Holy Spirit carried out that trust and how it began to make a mark in the world. And you know, when you come to think of it, the early church, those, those, those few disciples who saw their Lord crucified, 
and he had charged them with the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when he left them, they were without any influence. They had no money. They had no institutions. They had no literature except the Old Testament. Their leader had been crucified as the arch criminal of the universe. Their treasurer had was an embezzling suicide. And here they were responsible for launching a world movement that was going to last for 2,000 years. How did, how did they go about it? Well, here's the story. We read about it in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of one church. Now let us just think about it. Uh, in the, the early days of the, uh, this uh, Christian uh, era, there were two influential churches, the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. Of course, the church at Jerusalem was born on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 who were all baptized into the body of Christ and formed the beginning of the bride of Christ. And the church at Jerusalem for a period experienced continuous revival. In chapter 2 and verse 40, it says, The Lord added daily those who were being saved. Here were every day, not, not once a week or once a month, but every day there was added to the church those who were being saved. And they enjoyed a continuous revival. The spectacular events of the day of Pentecost, uh, they had created a great impression. And of course, they were very spectacular. There was the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. There was a cloven tongues like as of fire that descended and distributed self on each of them. There was the speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And these things made a great impression on those who heard about them. But if you'll notice, the wind, the fire, the tongues, what, do, what was the, the significance of those things? The significance is they're symbolizing the irresistible witness of a spirit-filled church. The irresistible wind. The consuming fire that burned up everything that was combustible. And the, the tongues of the witnesses. Remember that the, those who spoke with other tongues, they bore witness to what God had done. And so the surroundings of the descent of the Holy Spirit gave an impression of the irresistible wind of the Spirit, the irresistible fire of the Spirit, the Spirit-empowered speech of the people. And uh, that, it was in that context that the Lord said, you will receive power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me. 
Now, the church at Jerusalem never really grasped the significance of the Great Commission. They experienced continuous revival for a period. And it seemed as though they were going to sweep all before them. But something happened. The early promise was not realized. The church at Jerusalem never really grasped the sweep and the genius of the Great Commission. I wonder if you noticed, as we read in chapter 11, that they were scattered abroad under the emperor Claudius. He ejected all the Christians from Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad. And it says they went everywhere preaching the word. How wonderful. It took persecution to get the church at Jerusalem going. Jesus had said, you are to begin at Jerusalem and you are to fan out to Judea and then to go to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But to their myopic vision, uh, Jerusalem was the place and they concentrated on where they were. And even when they were scattered abroad in chapter 11, it says they preached only to Jews. You see, they were race conscious. They were the privileged people. And they preached to Jews only, not to Gentile dogs. And you know that grieved the spirit. Any racial prejudice grieves the spirit of God. And the church at Jerusalem was in part laid aside. But in that passage we read in chapter 11, there were certain men who came from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they were were believers. And they began preaching to Greeks also. They didn't confine their message to a privileged clique. They realized that the gospel was to be taken to all the worlds, to all nations. And so they preached to Greeks, the Greeks also. And the church at Antioch grasped the genius of the Great Commission and they took the crown which should have been the Jerusalem the church at Jerusalem. The point to notice is that it took persecution to purge the church of its racial discrimination. You know, that's something that in our day we've got to be very, very sensitive about. The Lord said that we were to take the gospel to all nations. No racial discrimination. We were to to take it to all classes. We are to take it to all creatures, everybody, without any discrimination whatever. And the church at Jerusalem lost its crown because it didn't fully carry out the Great Commission. But the Lord wouldn't, of the, of the harvest wouldn't be frustrated. And so he sent these men from Cyprus and Cyrene 
They weren't apostles. They, they had no status. They were just lay people. And I think this is very encouraging. Here were these men. They came and they did what the privileged people from Jerusalem who had been there and had seen Jesus and, and heard him and so on. Here were these lay people from Cyprus and Cyrene who came and as they preached the good news to not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. Did you notice that in our reading in the 11th chapter there was one statement that was repeated three times? A great number of people. A great number of people. A great number of people. You see, on the day of Pentecost, they kept statistics. There were 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. And then afterwards, there were 5,000 who were obedient to the faith. But now it's gone beyond statistics. There are so many that all they can say is a great number of people, a great number of people, a great number of people turned to the Lord. And you know that in Antioch, at this time, John Chrysostom tells us that there were 100,000 Christians in Antioch. And uh, later, uh, according to the fathers, one person in two was a Christian in Antioch. So if you got on the bus in Antioch, you've got two chances, one chance out of two of sitting next to a Christian. Imagine a, a, a city where one half of the people were Christian. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And the lesson from this is, here was the church which made the missionary enterprise its central responsibility, and God blessed that church in its local witness in a unique way. And that's got something to say to us too, hasn't it? I've gone around the world many times, and I've preached in hundreds of churches, and I I think I'm correct in saying that generally speaking, those churches which make the Great Commission and their responsibility to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth are the churches which are most prosperous in the truest sense in their own local situation. I've watched the giving of a church and the church I used to belong to. And it was very interesting. They became a very missionary church and the missionary giving used to go up and go up. And I saw a graph. And do you know what happened? When the missionary giving went up, the local giving went down. Oh, did it? It kept pace with the missionary giving. You see, when people get the love of giving to God in order that the Great Commission might be fulfilled, God enables them to give more to the, the, uh, local, the local expenses. It doesn't mean that because we give more to missions that the local work will suffer. And because we take an interest, a deep interest in missions, that the local work will suffer. The Church of Antioch tells us that 
the church that fulfills the divine purpose will experience blessing at home. Now the, uh, the church that set the, the world aflame was an ideal missionary church. And the first thing you'll notice about it was it was multinational and supra-racial. Not only in its membership, but in its leadership. And this is important. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, where did Barnabas come from? He came from Cyprus. And uh, Simeon, called Niger, he was a black African. Lucius came from Cyrene. Manaean was an Edomite. He'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, Saul came from Tarsus. So here you have people of different nationalities coming from different countries. And here the leadership of the church was supra-racial and multinational. I believe that that is a, is a very wonderful thing. I'm very glad that the Overseas Missionary Fellowship is multinational and supra-racial. We have over a thousand missionaries, but we've got 25 different nationalities in our mission, and uh, I think about the same number of denominations. Now, there's, a, there's plenty of cause there for, for problems, isn't there? 25 nationalities working together and 25 denominations. Well, however can those people stick together? I'll tell you, because they love the same Lord and they count the things that we hold in common more important than those things which divide us. And this was true of the church in in, uh, at, at Antioch. Now, the work had grown so tremendously rapidly that it got too much for Barnabas. When the church in Jerusalem heard what was going on in the church at Antioch, well, they must have a finger in the pie, so they would send an inspector across. But what a man they chose. They chose Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And they couldn't have made a better choice. The Holy Spirit, the administrator of the missionary enterprise, was the one who chose Barnabas. And what a man he was. Uh, he, he, every, every reference you have to Barnabas is, is a, a commendatory reference. His name was not Barnabas, really. His name was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That meant that wherever he went, he was encouraging people. Would you like a verse for this week? Would, would you obey it, do you think? If I gave you a good verse, would you obey it? Encourage one another daily. 
and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another daily. Well, Barnabas was a great encourager, but the work grew too much for him. And he said, oh, I must have help. And uh, so he turns over in his mind and he prays about it. And, and uh, what does he do? Oh, he made a very wonderful choice. He chose the arch persecutor of the church. He chose Saul of Tarsus, the one who had ravaged and savaged the church. And he chose him to be his helper. Other, other Christians were scared of, of Paul Saul. He didn't get a very warm welcome. They were scared that he was just uh, putting on a face. But we owe Saul of Tarsus to Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He made a daring choice under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And what a wonderful choice he made. And here they are, Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, because Barnabas was the senior missionary and Saul was the, the junior missionary. There they are in the leadership in the church at Antioch. And you could imagine that those two men were the outstanding people in the church at Antioch. They were the ones that would conduct the ministry and so on, or most of it. But uh, they didn't do it all, as we'll see. And so it's very interesting as you follow uh, the way in which Saul and Barnabas worked together. Saul was humble enough, even although he, his training lifted him miles above Barnabas, he was willing to work as a junior missionary. Now, People don't like working as a junior missionary. They want to be a senior missionary. We don't always like to be number two. Isaac Stern said, the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play is second fiddle. And that's true. And we don't like playing second fiddle. But here is this man, this great man, who could have taken his place with any of the philosophers or the religious leaders and, and defeated them. And here is he, number two to Barnabas. But before very long, it ceases to be Barnabas and Saul, and it becomes Saul and Barnabas. Why? The junior missionary becomes the senior missionary, and the senior missionary is humble enough to see God's hand resting on Saul and to rejoice in the fact that he was really number one. That says a great deal for Barnabas. And so here are the, some of the things that were happening. It was a supra-racial and multinational church. Then a second thing about it, it enjoyed a team ministry. It wasn't a one-man ministry church. In my youth, there was practically no such thing as a team ministry. One minister, he had the, he was the big, big shot, and that was that. But 
Thank God there has been a, a growth in the development of team ministries. And here you have a New Testament example of it. It says, you'll notice there that there were prophets and teachers. Not only Barnabas and Saul, there were others with spiritual gifts and they were uh, being utilized, their spiritual gifts were being utilized in the church. And Barnabas and Saul, was no doubt that they would be the outstanding uh, leaders, but the others were equally in a place of leadership. Uh, and there was room for the people who were spiritually gifted to exercise their gifts under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that's important because as you see the whole of the missionary enterprise, he is the inspiring spirit and the controlling spirit. He said there were uh, the prophets and teachers. There were people who were able to teach the word just as you have some of your elders who are gifted to teach the word. And that's a, a right thing in the, in the, the team ministry. Uh, not only able to give instruction, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he should be apt to teach. That doesn't mean that he would have the special gift of, uh, of a teacher necessarily, but what is teaching? It is the communication of truth. And one of the qualifications for a leader is that he should have the ability to impart and to communicate spiritual truth. Well, in that, in that church, there were certain prophets and teachers, uh, and they came from different, uh, different uh, uh, backgrounds. Uh, the leaders had their priorities right. Their first priority was not ministry to the congregation. Their first priority was ministry to the Lord. It says, as they worshipped and fasted. I think the King, King James puts it, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Here you have the leaders who are seeking God's mind concerning the direction the church should go and what its ministry should be. And as they ministered to the Lord, what happened? The Holy Ghost spoke. And it said they not only ministered to the Lord, but they fasted. They were prepared for self-denial. Today we had a chat about things and one of the men asked a question about fasting. Now here you have these five leaders who are waiting on the Lord and they fasted. Why did they fast? Now I don't see in the New Testament anywhere where it says thou shalt fast. There's no place that I know of where fasting is made compulsory, obligatory. 
But as you study the places where people fasted, you will find that it generally arose from a concern, a spiritual concern, so deep and so real that food became a secondary thing, not a primary thing. And here are these men, and they are ministering to the Lord. They're praying, they're fasting. Now it doesn't tell you what they say, what they prayed about. But I know, I, I know exactly what they prayed about. I've got inside information. <laughs> and it's in the passage. How do I know what they prayed about? By the answer God gave. They were praying about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. How can we fulfill that great commission that Jesus gave and they're waiting on God for him to reveal it and then the Holy Spirit said this is what you are to do this is your contribution to the fulfillment of the great commission you set apart the two most indispensable members of your congregation and send them away to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you'd better watch out for your minister. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit said. Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. Here were the leaders who had their priorities right. Uh, we want to know what to do and we turn on a, barn, a brainstorming session and we make our plans. The leaders of the church at Antioch didn't have a committee meeting which they sanctified with a word of prayer. They spent time worshipping the Lord and fasting and seeing what he wanted them to do? What is the thing that we can do? How can we be involved in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth? You know, it, it was 12 years or so at this time, 12 years or so uh, after Christ had risen from the dead and nothing very much had happened. But now the time has come and the Holy Spirit said to them, now, we're, we're not told how he said it, but the Holy Spirit has a way of making his will known to us when our hearts are receptive. And when we are willing to do his will, the Holy Spirit has a way of giving us the assurance that this is what he wanted us to do. It may be that the word came to those leaders through one of the prophets. He may, 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 may have come through that, but we're not told. But at any rate, the Holy Spirit made clear what he wanted to be done. And when he, when he, uh, he, he said, he said, separate Paul and Saul and Barnabas to the work whereunto I have called them. That is to say, he had already called Saul and Barnabas individually. He said, 
You separate. I have called them already. Now, your job as the church is to set them apart to this ministry to which I have called them. Barnabas and Saul didn't offer to go out as missionaries. In fact, you will look in vain, I think I'm right, you will look in vain for any case in which anybody offered to go out and volunteer to go out as a missionary. Why is it that young people have to volunteer today? Because the church is not the missionary society. You see, the church in those days didn't have a missionary society. It was a missionary society. In our days, so many churches are not very interested. And if the young people didn't come and offer, well, they wouldn't get out. But in those days, it was, it was different. The Holy Spirit set them apart. And then the church assented. They consented to uh, stand behind those whom the Holy Spirit had called. You'll notice, too, that it says the, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It apparently, the witness of the church was so tremendous and had such an effect on the city that they said, oh, these are Christ ones, Christians. Uh, it was a nickname in those days uh, because here were people who were so obviously in love with Christ. These are Christ ones. And that began in uh, Antioch. So when we are uh, thinking about our missionary obligation, the church at Antioch is a, a very inspiring example. It was a prayerful church. And you'll notice that the, the, the missionaries were discovered in prayer. It was while the leaders were praying that the Holy Spirit revealed to them that it was Barnabas and Saul who were to be the missionaries. They were discovered in prayer. They were set apart with prayer and fasting. They were sent off with prayer and fasting. They were supported by the church. And they were welcomed home by the church when they came back to give a report on what they'd done. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is the inspiring force behind it. You'll notice that it says, so they being sent forth by the church. Yes. But it says first, so they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit. You see, that is the authorization that a missionary needs. It's one thing to be set apart by the church, but if we have not first been set apart by the Holy Spirit, then our missionary career won't be very fruitful. And so here you have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in communicating to the leaders of a church those whom he wants sent out. And you know, the leaders of a church ought to be on the lookout to discern those who show the signs and the evidence that they have the qualities that God is looking for to take the gospel 
to the ends of the earth. You'll notice too that these two men took no action until the church moved. They could have gone out and established uh, Paul and Barnabas ministries. That's what happens today. So often when somebody can't work in a team, they're not willing to be number two or number three. They just go out and start their own ministry. When I went to Japan first in 1947, there were only 200 missionaries in the whole country. Today, there are about 200 different groups working in Japan. And most of them are just uh, very small groups who won't work with anybody else. You see, our our individualism can lead us astray. There, there, there is not much room on the mission field today for rugged individualists. The great need is those who will work together and be prepared to be part of a team, not merely so that they must have their own show. I think that that is something that is weakening the missionary movement. How are the Japanese to know which of the 200 groups they are to align themselves with if they are to align themselves with a group? I think that is something that uh, is, has, has weakened the missionary cause. And then you imagine the joy when Saul and Barnabas came back after their missionary journey. And they told of the wonderful things that God had done. Did they tell the wonderful things that they had done for God? No. They told of the wonderful things God had done through them. You know, there's a big difference between the two things. You see, they were working, not that glory might be brought to them, they were working that glory might be brought to him. And so the whole of that missionary enterprise, it began with five godly men who met to minister to the Lord, to worship the Lord, to fast, to pray and seek his mind how the church could best serve him. And when the Spirit of God found a group of men that were there and were willing to listen. He spoke to them. He communicated his will. He set apart men of great ability. And they went and laid the foundations of the whole of the missionary enterprise. And I believe that if we are going to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our generation that we need to take notice of some of these things. We need to have no racial discrimination in our hearts or in our minds, and we welcome people of every race and of every class. So often our, uh, our witness is merely to the upper middle, middle and upper classes, but the Lord specialized in uh, the bruised reeds and the dimly burning wicks. We want somebody who will work or somebody who will uh, show something for it. But the Lord said, uh, a bruised reed he will not 
break and the dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. And I believe that we've got to be as willing to work among the needy people down at the bottom as uh, those who are up at the top. Uh, Our Lord had a special concern for the poor. And I'm glad to say that in the missionary movement today, there is a far greater concern for the poor and the needy than there ever has been in this this century. And I believe that is... uh, that is a sign of the church obeying and yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The church at Antioch grasped the meaning and the genius of the Great Commission and they put the Great Commission at the center of their work. And it didn't diminish their local witness, it increased it. They were prayerful in their planning. They didn't uh, just sit down and call a committee meeting to plot what we would do. They waited on the Lord and he gave his plan. That's what the Lord Jesus did. Their work grew out of their praying. We add a little prayer to our work. Prayer often is supplemental. God intends it to be fundamental. This church was spirit-led in its movements and in its ministry. They sought the mind of the Lord and then they followed it. And the movement from that church outwards was a movement that turned the world upside down. Do you know, in one generation after the resurrection, the early church reached almost the whole of the then known world in one generation. What could we do in this generation? The Lord has put into our hands tools that would accelerate the spread of the gospel if we made use of them. We've got almost total mobility. I left New Zealand uh, and I flew to Los Angeles in 11 hours. I could stop for two hours in Los Angeles and go to London in 11 hours. And in one day I had crossed the world. I lived for a few years in Papua New Guinea where there are impossible mountains and unreachable valleys. But now they're reached because there are airstrips and airplanes going. And the world really has become a global village. The radio brings the whole world within sound of the gospel. I've been up in the north of Thailand in the mountains there and going through the opium poppy fields, and there are the people working away, getting their opium. And uh, around their shoulders, they've swung a radio. They can't read or write, but they've overleaped uh, education, and they can listen in to the Far Eastern Broadcasting Company 
giving the gospel in their own language. The whole world, this room is full of the gospel. All we need is the right receiver and we could get it in whatever language we want. The room is full of the gospel. And God has put all these things into our hands. And in, in those days they had nothing. And yet in one generation they reached the then known world. Why is it that in this generation we are using these gifts of God to minister to our comfort and our ease when God intended it to be a means of accelerating getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. The beginning of this century, the student volunteer movement began and it had as its motto, the evangelization of the world in this generation. And they believed that that was possible and they set themselves to do it. And do you know that no fewer than 30,000 young men and young women went out under the student volunteer movement? But they didn't achieve it in their generation. And uh, the movement waned. And then the, the Spirit of God was not uh, frustrated. And so he started another movement. He started the InterVarsity in the 30s. And, uh, and they had another motto. Their motto was evangelize to bring back the king because they realized that the scripture said that the gospel was to be preached to as a testimony to all nations before Christ would return. And so evangelize to bring back the king. And once again, another great stream of young people moved out to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that's dried up too. And missionary recruitment is not uh, increasing if it were not that almost one-third of the Protestant missionary force came from third world countries, we would be very far behind what we were 20 years ago. Urbana has served to keep the missionary vision before us, but there are far too few who promise and offered to, to go to the mission field at Urbana in the previous years. There's not too many have got there. I wonder what this generation could do. Do you know that for the first time in history, this is a young people's world? There are almost as many young people under 21 as all the rest of the population of the world. Almost half the world are under 21 years of age. In India, 40% under 14 years of age. China, 38% under 15 years of age. And here are these vast numbers of young people your age. In Asia, there are one billion young people under 21. Now, who are responsible for the evangelization of the young people of the world? The young Christians of the world. You. I'm not proud of what my generation has done. We haven't completed the task. We haven't evangelized the world in our own generation. Thank God it's nearer than it was. And there are very few places where the gospel hasn't penetrated. 
but the Christ hasn't returned and so the task is not yet done. How are you going to invest your life? I was speaking at a, a conference with George Murray at Ben Lippin in South Carolina, I forget whether it's South or North Carolina, it doesn't matter. Uh, he, uh, he said, when I was a young man, a student, he said, if you come to me and say, are you willing to go to the mission field? You know, I was interested. I said, oh, yes, yes, I'm willing. He said, if you'd come to me next year and said, are you willing to go to the mission field? I said, oh, yes, I'm willing. But he said, I didn't do anything about it. And then, then God began to deal with me. And he showed me that my attitude was purely negative. And he said, as I thought it over, my attitude was this, Lord, I'm willing to go, but I'm planning to stay. <laughs> Anybody here like that? He was sincere. He wasn't, he, he wasn't insincere. But his attitude was negative. And he said, when I realized that my attitude was purely negative, I took a different attitude and I said, Lord, you've said go and make disciples of all nations. There's no reason why I shouldn't go. And the need in the, the third world is immeasurably greater than it is here. There's no reason why I shouldn't go. So from now on, my attitude is, Lord, I'm planning to go but I'm willing to stay. You see, he turned from the negative to the positive. He said, while I was just willing to go but planning to stay, I received no call from God. But he said, the moment I changed my attitude and I said, Lord, I'm in obedience to your command, I'm planning to go, but I'm equally willing to stay if your choice for me is to serve at home. I'm equally willing to do that. He said, it wasn't very long before I had my call, and he is the, the, the leader of a, quite a large missionary society today. You see, a liner can be tied up to a wharf, and it may have on board a pilot who is very experienced, he knows the harbor inside out, he knows the rocks, the shoals, and so on, but he cannot steer the ship while it is moored to the wharf. It has to throw off the mooring lines before the pilot can guide the ship. When we are tied to earth, the heavenly pilot cannot guide us. We are tied. I wonder what your response is to the Lord. How are you going to invest your life? The opportunities today, and with this I close, the opportunities today are of strategic service are absolutely astounding. May I tell you of one young lady, a uh, good many years ago, she, she was in Canada, uh, she came to me and she said, I, I am a, an art teacher in a high school. Do you think my art could be used in the mission field? 
I said, sure it could. We could make use of it in our, our literature department. Well, she ultimately came to Indonesia in our mission, and she learned the language. She did her artwork in, in our literature program. She became very proficient in not only in speaking, but in writing the language. And then she was approached by the education department of the government of Indonesia, which is a Muslim government, 80% Mohammedan. And in the constitution of the, in Indonesia, the first provision is every Indonesian must have a religion. They don't uh, say what religion it is. They don't uh, make any provision. But the government, the Muslim government, undertakes to provide a teacher for whatever religion the student in high school or in university elects to take. And that means that for drawing up the curriculum for a whole course in Christianity and to write the notes that the teachers would use for how many high schools? 2,000 high schools. Can you take that in? You see, Indonesia is the fifth largest country in population in the world. You see that little island of Java on the map, it's just about that long. It's got a hundred million people on it. 2,000 high schools. And for many years, that lady is just about retired now, but for many years, she has had the opportunity of getting evangelical teaching, Bible teaching into the heart and mind of tens and hundreds of thousands of young people. How are you going to use your degree and so on? Are you going to use it to make gold which perishes? Or are you going to turn it into souls? Turn it into something that will go on producing and producing right throughout eternity. I do trust that you will seriously consider whether or not you should not take as your attitude, Lord, you have said, go and make disciples of all nations. From now on, I'm planning to go, but I'm willing to stay. When you are genuinely in that position, you are in a wonderful position to get God's guidance. And uh, he will not deceive you. The Lord will guide you if you are willing to do his will.